as the calendar shifted from 2009 to 2010, I was involved in a battle. On Christmas Eve, 2009, I was in our house and I went around a corner about the same time that my son's dog, who may or may not have been demon-possessed, came around the corner the other way and I had to make a snap decision whether I would trample the dog to death or try to save his life. And so, because I love my son, I tried to dodge the dog and I fell into the wall and immediately knew that I had injured my back. And so for the next six or eight weeks, we made the transition in my life from having no back pain or very little back pain to being in excruciating pain. I began the process of going from one doctor to another who pushed me then to therapists and physical therapists and pain management specialists. And ultimately, my doctor said, you need to have surgery and you need to find a neurosurgeon that you can count on and you need to go see him. So as February began to turn into March, after several weeks of just increasing pain, Teresa and I made our way to College Station, Texas. Did y'all know that there's a college there at College? <laughs> I forget the name of it, but um, found my way there to a neurosurgeon who was a teaching surgeon in the Texas Tech School of Medicine there. Excuse me, Texas A&M. Texas Tech is the best one, right? The Texas A&M Medical Center there, or Medical School there. And so I, I remember sitting in Dr. Briner's office as he had taken me through a series of tests and evaluations, and uh, I was in all kinds of pain. And he sat me down, Teresa was sitting next to me, and Dr. Briner said this, I can fix it. And I... Uh, It's what I wanted to hear, but I was surprised that I was hearing that because all the other doctors and people I'd been seeing couldn't do anything with it. And Dr. Bryan said, I can fix it. And I said, excuse me? He said, said, I can fix your pain. He said, "I I, I can take care of this for you, and you will not be in pain anymore. And I remember, like it was yesterday, responding to him with this statement. If you can get my pain away, I will vote for you to be king of the world. It went just like he said it would. He told me, you will wake up in the recovery room after surgery, and he said, you will be free of pain. And that was exactly true. And so a couple weeks, with my vote to make him king of the world. Now, I start there today, he's really picking up what we already started, and As we come together on this Palm Sunday, I start there because I want you to maybe relate a little bit in my experience with that surgeon and the way we sometimes approach Jesus Christ. Because my words were just really figurative. Uh, I really said them, but obviously I'm not going to vote for him to be king of the world. But the reality is that I was taking that posture with him because of what he could do for me and because of what he did for me. I'm going to suggest to you that, especially in this Easter week, 
that we can very easily say all the right things, go through all the right steps, be at all of the special services that come with Holy Week, and we can come to Jesus Christ and to the worship of who he is, and we can be so close to true worship and yet so far away from getting it right. Because so often we reduce worship to being based on what Jesus does for me. So take your Bibles and turn with me today. We're going to go to the traditional Palm Sunday passage of Scripture. Matthew chapter 21 is where we find ourselves, and we're going to work our way deep into this text and into this chapter before it's all said and done here. But as we come into this, here's what I really want you to hang on to, that when we approach our worship of Jesus Christ, even if we say all the right words, but when we approach that worship of him from a consumer mentality, then we are likely to get praise and worship wrong. And so often we reduce our relationship with him to that consumer orientation that essentially says, if you will do this for me, then I will vote for you to be king. Here's a newsflash for you. Let's just go ahead and get this on the table before we get started really well. Jesus is already king. You can vote for him or against him, but it doesn't matter because he is not only king, Scripture says he's king king of kings, even. This crowd that we find, I mentioned earlier that that I've historically had a problem with the way we approach, we as Christians and Christendom throughout church history, I have a bit of a problem with the way we come at Palm Sunday. That's because I find this little set of facts that, that really causes me to trip up a little bit. This same set of people who on Palm Sunday cry out, Hosanna, by the end of the week will be crying out, crucify him. This same crowd, and I want you to watch as we read through this, how they refer to Jesus and how they understand who he is. It's close. They're close. It's not that they're wrong. It's just that they're not totally right. As you'll find, they're going to refer to Jesus as a prophet. Well, he certainly is that, but he's more than that. He's king, right? Okay, well, hang with me then. Today they yell, Hosanna, but Thursday they yell, crucify him. How do we avoid their mistake? How do we approach Palm Sunday with all that's right about Palm Sunday? How do we come into this so that we're not guilty of changing our perspective on who Jesus is. We'll talk about that as we move, but let's come to our text today. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. And now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, and humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their clothes, 
cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. How do you, how do you explain the shift that will occur in their thinking about Jesus over just a few days. It may well be that they, like we can be, were so close to genuine, honest, and proper worship, and yet so far away from really understanding the dynamics of that based on who Jesus really is. The truth that I hope that you'll hang on to today is that when we approach worship And we are selfishly motivated in that. In other words, I'll praise him because of what he's done for me. Or I'll do it the way I think it ought to be done. When we come at praise and worship and we're selfishly motivated, it is almost certain that we will lose faith somewhere down the road. Let me explain that as we work our way through this. Part of the reason for that, as we're going to find almost immediately in this text and beyond, is that Jesus drives a hard bargain. <laughs> Let me say that again. One of the reasons that our faith is, is likely to stumble a bit going forward if we're only selfishly motivated in what does Jesus give to me and what do I get out of this, one of the reasons for that is because Jesus drives a hard bargain. Jesus will not let anybody else be God. That's a problem for us. This is the first thing I want us to grab from this. The problem for us is that our motives can can just be wrong. We can come to our worship and we can be so wrapped up in us and what's good for me and what fits what I like and what fits the historical model that I like. And so we, we can just come at it in our sin nature is that which drives our worship sometimes. Let me explain what I mean by that. Satan is no dummy. And he recognizes that sometimes if he can't get us to do the wrong thing, then he'll get us to do the right thing in the wrong way or for the wrong reasons. Sin, the essence of sin, you have heard me say, is selfishness. It's control. The essence of sin is that part of me that says, just like you, says, I will be God. I'll call the shots. I will order my universe. One of the reasons you have so much trouble with people in your life is because they have the same problem you have, and that is our sin nature says, I will control this universe. And then when our universes overlap, who gets to be God? And so we bring that, if we're not careful, we bring that into the time of worship and the way that we worship, and it sets us up for problems. And the reason it does is because we don't really like any other gods with a capital G or a small g, we don't like any other God challenging us as God. Satan knows that about us, and so when we come into worship, we often ask this question, probably not really in our conscience, but in our subconscience, we ask the question, what's in it for me? 
Here's how that plays out. Now, our ch- not our church here. I haven't been here long enough to have been part of that. But during my ministry time over the last several decades, we have lived through what church specialists call the age of the worship wars. You familiar with that? And it's strictly tied to the style of worship music that churches have experienced, and many churches have split over. Some churches have even died over that. And so here's the basic idea. The worship wars have been grounded in our churches by which is the right kind of music for us to sing? What is the style that we should do? Now, I'm going to stop here. I did this in the early service when Elvin was sitting in here. Uh, I'm going to make sure you hear me say this and especially to all of you who are part of the music ministry of this church. Y'all doing a phenomenal job. I love the music ministry of this church and what it does for us. I do. I thought somebody would say amen for that, but because it's, <laughs> we do it well here. So I'm not really talking about our church here. I'm talking about the worship wars and that idea that went behind it. That part of us that says, well, there's a really, really, if we want to get worship right, there's one style of music that does that, and that's death metal. Okay, you may not know what death metal is, all right? Pretty sure that's not what it is. So let me put it on terms that you might understand. There are those in the church today worldwide who would say, that the proper kind of worship music is hymns. And there are others who would say that the proper kind of worship music is choruses. And there are those who would kill both of those groups because they know that the proper kind of worship music is classical music. That's, the, that's basically what happened with the worship wars in our churches. We reduced worship to music first, and then we reduced it to a particular style of music. I thought one day, see, sometimes my, my brain gets me in trouble because my brain gives my mouth an idea before it issues the don't say it command. And so I was having a discussion with some people in a church that I was pastoring at the time, and they were heated about this. I mean, they were were all kinds of serious about what kind of music we should sing in church and what kind we shouldn't sing in church because, after all, everybody knows that my kind is the right kind. And so I thought, all right, how do we get to this? And I came across this great idea, except it wasn't that great as it turns out. So in the middle of their discussion, I asked them this question. What kind of music are we going to sing in heaven? Now, you see, in my head, that sounds like a brilliant question. It's not, okay? Because it allowed both of those people to default to what was best for them. And so what I did is I raised the stakes in the argument because they were just saying, what kind should we sing in our church? And now all of a sudden, both of them were saying, well, you know in heaven we're going to sing choruses. No, we're not. In heaven we're going to sing hymns. And it just was a losing proposition. Churches split over what style of music was the way to do it. Here's, Here's why I've spent all this time in this sermon on that little point. 
if you're willing to fight about what the proper kind of style of music in a church is, it may be that your motives are selfish. It might not be, but it might be. Because we tend to like what we like. And what we don't like, we label. And what we label, we tend to label as insufficient for what we do like. So, coming into this, that selfish motivation that we often bring into our worship, that, that selfish motivation that is driven by the question, what's in this for me, is problematic for us. Look with me at verse 9 again, because this, these people are they're, they're what I'm talking about. All right? Verse 9 is highly and disturbingly instructive for us. So I'll read it again. Verse 9, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna, by the way, means God save us. Hosanna in the highest, uh, excuse me, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And with that, they lay out the standard. They're, they're using language that has these messianic overtones. By referring to Jesus, the one sitting on this donkey, going in with these palm fronds being dropped in front of them, the, the way that kings would come in in a parade of triumph. They are laying the groundwork for a mentality that says, this is Messiah. This is the one that we've been waiting for. This is God's promised deliverer. This is the very son of David, they call him. And they're right. That's the problem with us here. The words they use are right. Jesus is Messiah. Right? Stay with me. Jesus is the Son of God, right? Right. So it's not that what they said is wrong. The the problem is that they say this on Sunday, but on Thursday they say, we got to kill this guy. Why? What triggered that flip in their thinking? I'm going to also suggest to you, I'm going to come to that question in a minute, by the way, but I'm going to also suggest to you that they're almost right. They're so close and yet so far. Because we saw also then in verse 10 when they asked the question, who is this? Verse 11, it says, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You know what? They're right again. He is the prophet. But they're not totally right because he's more than a prophet. If they really want to get the answer right, they should listen to what they said before people started asking who it is. But they can't quite get there. They're close. It's not quite there. So before we move any further, let me just get us to wear what is ours to wear here. How do you see Jesus? To go back to where I started with the palm frond, and you have the opportunity to vote on who's king today. How do you decide? Do you decide based on who you know Jesus to be, who Scripture reveals him to be, or do you decide based on what kind of experience you're having with him today or last week? See, one of the problems, I don't know who said this first. I, 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 I wish I could figure it out. I'd, I'd send them a note and say, hey, thanks for that great truth. But one of the great truths of Christian growth and development 
was stated by somebody who first said, the furthest distance in the Christian life is the distance from your head to your heart. Because in our heads, we jump into the parade in Matthew 21. In our head, we jump in and say, this is Jesus the Christ. This is who he is, the son of David. Hosanna, save us, Father. Save us, God. And this one is your Savior that you have sent for us. In our heads, we say that. But in our hearts, we have this competing, this this showdown, this problematic relationship where we just not sure we want him to be God of the way we live. And that leaks into the way we worship. And so we begin to reduce worship to what makes us feel good. Oh, I sure did love those songs. That's my favorite song. I worship well today. Or I just hate it when he gets those youth choir up there singing all the time. Because you know those kids, they just... We can find a thousand and one different reasons if we're just looking for reasons why we can't worship. You only need one to worship, and that is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King of Kings. They almost get it right, but not quite. So that leaves me then to the next part of it, and that is how do we... Or what is the deal with that? How do we get to the yet so far away from this? And here's my answer to that. The problem that we often have, our sin nature that keeps us from settling in to letting God be God is that God is bound to disappoint us if we demand to be God. And so when I settle in and I say, okay, so I'm going to be the God of my universe and I'm going to run things and I'm going to control everything around me, it sets me up for problems and it set them up for problems. Let me just give you a few examples out of this passage and actually it's going to go from beyond what we've already read. So here's the first one, three different things that caused them to make that turn between Sunday and the crucifixion cries that they had. Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17, we read this way. And Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Jesus The reason that they were moving from Hosanna on Sunday to crucify him later in the week is because Jesus would not let them do church on their terms. Let me just be quiet and let that settle in. Jesus refused to let them do church on their terms. They had it down to a science. You have to come to the temple to sacrifice. So that means that you need a sacrifice. 
And so that you don't have to worry about bringing it from the outer reaches of the Jewish nation at the time, we'll just sell you your sacrifice here at church and so at the temple. And so you show up at the temple and we'll sell you what you need and, and it'll be guaranteed to, to meet the criteria. And they had their nice little worship enterprise. And Jesus came in and he said, I'll have none of that. Thank you very much. That's a problem. When you let Jesus be God, he has this tendency to change things to make them right. So we go to verses 18 through 22. Not only did Jesus not let them do church on their terms, he didn't let them do life on their terms. And so we pick it up now. He's going to talk directly to these uh, religious leaders. Verse 18, in the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went, in, uh, went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, Shazam! Every once in a while, I like to make sure you're really with me. That's not what they said, okay? If your Bible has Shazam written in there, Trade it in. I'll give you a better one, all right? I'll give you one that's right, all right? So let me go back and get it right. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? You ever think that sometimes the disciples were just a little slow on the uptake? They've been with Jesus three and a half years. They've seen him walk on the water. They've seen him heal people. They've seen him multiply a little bitty lunch into food for multitudes. They've seen him raise the dead, and they're shocked at what they see here. Verse 21, and Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt and, will not, and, and, will, and you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. There are 11 dozen different sermons out of that little passage. But let's not miss that driving truth. Jesus, in the use of that fig tree in a symbolic act, called out the religious leaders of first century Judaism for being unfaithful to what they were called to be. Once again, the problem with, for us, when we want to be God, but we let Jesus be who he is, which is God, he changes things, and we don't tend to like change. If we wanted to take the time, and I don't this morning, we could go on to chapter 23 where Jesus just turns the fire up on these religious leaders. Chapter 3, a series of statements, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because you haven't been what you're supposed to be. What we find in those few passages are just examples of why on Sunday they can say, Jesus, Jesus, he's our guy. To on Thursday saying, he's got to die. We just, we just can't have this. As we go into Holy Week this week, I want us to settle into that truth. 
Because reality is, I, I love you and all of that, but you're just like I am. And I find myself all over this passage for the wrong reasons. So often we reduce the Christian life to what's in it for me. And we let our sin nature that is driven towards consumer orientation, we let that just choke Jesus out and push him to the margins of our life until we need him. And then when we need him, because we always need him, then when we need him, we pull him back in, but we want him on our terms, not his. This Jesus just won't do that. Oh, he'll give you plenty of benefit for your life. I'm not saying that there's nothing of benefit to this. Quite the opposite. The problem is you can't even get to him unless you bow your knee first. Jesus, who is God, who is the son of David, who is justifiably identified as king as he comes in on Palm Sunday, is just as much king as he hangs on a cross on Friday. We know that's true because of Easter and because of the resurrection and because of the ascension and because we have all these low so many thousand years now where Jesus continues to prove himself to be the king of kings. How do we avoid that selfish part of worship? How do we avoid slipping into some kind of a mentality that says, okay, what's in it for me? And as long as I'm with you, or as long as you're with me, then I'll, I'll be with you. Jesus answers this. I don't have time to go there. It's Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40, where we find what has now become something of a cliche among churches. I see it on church signs everywhere. The problem with religious cliches is they tend to cause us to overlook the truth that caused us to see it in the first place. But in that passage where Jesus is approached and said, what's the greatest commandment of all? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is you shall love your neighbors yourself. So what we find on church signs and church stationery, and we even repeat it, is love God and love people. Here's where we often miss it because of the cliche. That word love that's used there is a legal term. It's a term that is contractual. It's always used in a sense of someone who is superior and sovereign with someone who is not, a slave, if you will. So between this, this person who is sovereign and this person who is just a slave, there is this, this decision, this contract that's made where the sovereign says, I will look after you, I will care for you, I will treat you as if you are. And love means I will serve you. I will bow my knee to you. I will allow you to be sovereign. So when we say love God, we find the answer to this problem we have of selfish Christianity. Love God means bow the knee. Love God means surrender to his authority. And when we don't get that right in worship. When we approach worship from the standpoint of what's in it for me, I don't like that, so I want to change it so that it's what I like. When we get it wrong, then that means that we have pushed him off of the throne and taken our place there. Bobby Bowden was football coach for Florida State University for a number of years. Great success in that position. 
And one of his players said years later that in his attempts to motivate his football team before games or during games, he would tell little parables, modern-day stuff. And one of those little stories that he told came out of his own experience. Apparently, Bobby Bowden was quite a baseball player at some time. And in high school, he was good enough that he was able to go to college and play baseball in college. And so in one particular game, as he, was, he hadn't hit a home run in college, and it was kind of bothering him apparently. Uh, and so in this one particular game, he got up to bat and he hit a line shot that went down one of the baselines and went way out into the outfield. And Bobby Bowden said, I ran for my life. He said, I had no idea what was going to happen. I just knew it was a great hit. I was going to stretch it out and get as many bases as I could. He rounded first and he looked over at his third base coach and his third base coach was waving him on. And he said, I ducked my head and I just ran. Got to second base and rounded second base and he was still waving me on. And so I ducked my head and I ran. I got to third and he's yelling at me, go home, go home. And so he ran for all he was worth and he got home and he was safe at home. An in the park home run. His first college home run. The dugout emptied, all of his teammates came out and they were high-fiving and everything was incredibly great for him. And when the pitcher got the ball, he turned to the first baseman, he threw it to the first baseman, the first baseman took the ball, stepped on the bag, and the umpire said, you're out because you forgot to touch first base. Here's what we draw from that. Bowden said to his team as he told that story, it doesn't matter what you do after first base if you miss first base. So for us, on Holy Week, on the front end, first base for us, is we have to get worship right. We have to understand that that Jesus who rode on that donkey down a dusty street in Jerusalem is the king of kings. I sat in my surgeon's office and let him know that I would let him be king of the world because of what he did for me. If you had a chance to vote for who gets to be king today, who would you vote for and why? And oh, by the way, you do get that vote. Vote for Jesus because he's already king of kings and he can be an incredible king in your life. Let's pray. Bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, we come now to a time of invitation. We pray that you would work in the hearts and lives of people. We pray that you'd change lives. For those who might be here who've never bowed their knee to Jesus Christ, I pray that today would be that day for them, that they would recognize that their attempts to be God of their own lives is just wrecking their own and other people's lives. We pray that you would show them who you are, that Jesus Christ is in fact Messiah. He is the one, the only one, who lives up to our cries for Hosanna, God save us. We pray that today would be a time, a day of, of change, of conversion, of new birth as they come to understand their need for a Savior. 
who can forgive and who can take them through this life and the life to come. Father, many of us, we've made the choice to follow you, but we keep kicking you off of the throne or at least trying to. For that, we're sorry. For that, we confess. We pray that you would move in our hearts in such a way that this first entry into Holy Week 2019 would be a time when we would come in and choose to let you be king. Change lives is our prayer now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. You come.